Well, Tom Monfiles was a paper mill worker in Green Bay, Wisconsin, who in 1992 was found dead at the bottom of a pulp vat at James River Paper Mill with a makeshift jump rope tied around his neck, the other end of which was attached to a 50-pound weight. Um, and So clearly an accident. Yes, clearly an accident. <laughs> Hey, welcome back once again. I know maybe you're surprised. We really are back. We're doing more episodes regularly. Last week, you got to hear me and Tom Farley. This week, it's that guy that you just heard, Michael Nielsen from Story First Media. They've got a documentary coming out pretty soon here. In fact, you can see it on Saturday, April 15th in Madison at the Wisconsin Film Festival. It's also playing at the festival in Green Bay the day before. But if you can't make either of those, you can check the show notes right now to pre-order the movie Beyond Human Nature right now. It would be so great if you did that. I'm in the movie and you can go check it out. Hey, want to make you aware that our first Story Slam event in over three years is happening on May 20th. The theme is boldly, so come ready to share or just hear great stories based on that theme. We're actually raising money for the Wilmar Center. That's where we're doing it that night, but we're raising money for them, so come and be generous. All right, get ready, buckle up. It's me and Michael. Here we go. And are you are you a Madison local? I know you're now in the like Milwaukee area, but now are you I from originally. I was born originally? in Milwaukee. Okay, um, but I only lived there for like two months. Okay, um, and then my dad got work in Rockford, Illinois, so we moved to Illinois, and I was a fib for like eleven right. years. <laughs> the first eleven years of my life. Um, there's actually. I was born a fib. Okay, so, so here we go. We yeah. can commiserate. There we yeah. go. But uh, there for eight months. Okay, yeah. got it. Uh, so you, okay, so born a fib yet. Less uh, infected, shall yes. we say. There we Less go. Okay. egregious. Yes. <laughs> um, I was steeped in that tea. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but then uh, there's actually some blackmail footage of me and photographs of me wearing Chicago Bears yeah. stuff. So, like... I have that shame, too. I yes. was a Bears fan as a young, young kid. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, but... Obviously, we all found God eventually, so we're good. <laughs> um, but uh, but then I uh, moved back to Madison uh, again, obviously just due to family. I, I was right. in, like middle of fifth grade, um, and then I was in Madison up through high school. I was a Memorial High School grad, um, uh, which is actually where I met Trevor too. We were in the same class, um, and then uh, went to film school in Los Angeles for a year. Uh, after that, and then was in Austin, Texas for four years, and then moved back here after that. So. Man, yeah. when I first met you, I'm trying to think if I met you before Beyond Human Nature. I feel like I met you like once or twice through Natalie I before think, then. I think it's very possible. I, I want to say our paths crossed right. kind of like ships in the night. Yeah, totally. Yeah. That, that's, a, that's a really good descriptor <laughs> of it. Um, but I'm, I've always been curious about like when did film start for you? Like was it early age? Like I, I know like looking through your social media stuff, like... You know, you love talking about film, not just mm -hmm. making film, but like films in general, the, the art of film and that type of storytelling. At what point in your life was it just like, this is more than just a passing interest? It was uh, middle of sixth grade. Um, uh, it was the first time that uh, I got assigned a, a, what would you call it, a project in school that could be done as a video. Sure. And so it, I think it was a book report. On and how the, old are you? Sorry for asking. Gosh, middle of sixth grade. How old would that no, be? No, no. How old are you now? Oh, sorry, now? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Now I'm uh, 36. Okay, I'm you. 35. I'm trying okay. to I'm trying to figure out, well, when I was in sixth grade, could yeah. I have done a video? And I could have pulled it off. It would yeah. have been janky. But yes, yeah. right. It was done on VHS. Yeah. Right. We, we, where you're literally shooting with a VHS recorder and you're stopping. You're editing as you're shooting it, right? Yeah. So like you're, you're doing a take. And then if you need to redo it, you rewind the tape and you tape over <laughs> totally. it, all that stuff. Um, uh, and so I did that with a friend of mine. It was, I think it was a book report on the novel, and then there were none, I think mm. is what it was. So it were, the, he and I literally played alternating characters. For those who don't know, it's 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 a murder mystery where like there's like nine characters, I think, and each scene somebody dies and like they're just one by one being picked off until there were none, right. as the title says. So we would go scene by scene where we would just alternate who's going to die now and, <laughs> and just play different characters and we'd just the other one would walk in and just like you know touch our throat and just be like you know uh, he's dead or whatever right. and move on. Um, so we did. I did that in the middle of sixth grade and then it got nice reaction from the teachers, you know, all that stuff. Um, and then I started to do more video for projects when I could. And it became the way that I was 
unique in class. Like, right. You know, I was I was one of those kids that would get picked like last in gym class and all that kind of stuff. Suddenly, if we're doing, very familiar, yes, so we can commiserate. <laughs> um, uh, suddenly, though, if we're doing like a video project, I'm the first kid picked. So like it's it it was a way for me to have right value. Yeah. Um, so it's just kind of stuck with me. I think. Yeah, it's interesting. I I was the same way as far as like always a creative. I just said to somebody yesterday uh, who was a three three sport athlete in mm. college mm-hmm. and was talking all about that. I was like, I mean, I drive Uber on the side and, mm-hmm. and just uh, meet a lot of people that way. And I was just like, wow, man, that's so impressive, blah, blah, blah. I was like, I can't relate to that at all. I, I have, I've never had an interest. Uh, you need me to write a song or go make some creative thing happen. Totally can do it. Just yeah. put me to task and I'll do it. Um, and, but the, the unfortunate thing was in high school, I was six foot four. Oh, wow. And 200 some pounds. Yeah. And so the coaches, whether it be basketball or football coaches, were relentless yeah, about bet. picking on me for not playing. Yeah. That was the worst. I, <laughs> if kids don't want to play football, if they want to go be creative, let them go be creative. Right. It's so stupid. Yeah. Um, hey, Story Slam people, uh, first of all, real quick, hi. It's been three years <laughs> since you've uh, heard this podcast out here. It's your host, Adam, here. I'm sitting here with my friend, Michael Nielsen. I met Michael as you've heard, um, I, we don't know when it was, but the reason I've got Michael on is because I appeared in a documentary that he directed, wrote and directed. It's always weird. Yeah. Documentary, you guess you do writing, yeah. Yep. Wrote and directed and and produced yep. and like all everything in between. Uh, it's called Beyond Human Nature. You can see it at the Wisconsin Film Festival, which is April. Uh, it's April 4th. Sorry. Yeah, 14th. Saturday, April 14th is the Wisconsin Film Festival screening. Hey, Adam jumping in here real quick, just to let you know one minor little detail here that we didn't quite get right. Saturday, April 14th doesn't exist. If you want to go to the Wisconsin Film Festival screening of Beyond Human Nature, you'll have to be there on Saturday, April 15th. But as you're listening to this right now, you can also pre-order it. You, yes, you can also <laughs> pre-order it. Yes, that's that's for sure. I'm excited about the yes. film festival yes, because I. I get to go see myself on a screen mm-hmm. uh, and more importantly, hear myself as somebody who's always wanted to be a VO artist. So yeah. that, that's pretty cool. And, and we're going to talk about Beyond Human Nature, uh, but I really wanted to have Michael on here because... Michael is a, a part of a company. He and his father started mm-hmm. a company yep. called Story First Media, where they help brands and you know companies, but also I'm sure people if they need to help them tell their story through video and and all that kind of stuff. So Michael and I have a lot of uh, the same kind of interest in in the importance of story and what it means for us as individuals. But I really wanted to talk to Michael about the uh, importance of it for for businesses and and mm-hmm. how businesses use that storytelling to. You know, we talk about at Madison Story Slam, what we do is we build community through storytelling. And the way that happens is when you get up on a stage or come on the podcast and you tell a true story, something personal from your life, it draws a line of connection with everybody who hears it. Mm -hmm. It really draws a line of connection if it's live. If you've got a, a, a bunch of people in an audience, it's individual lines of connection. And those individual lines is what you build community on. And I imagine that's very similar for businesses who are relying on the storytelling aspect of trying to reach people. They're just trying to connect with somebody at a personal level so that they can build upon that. Maybe it's not community per se, but it's building a relationship with that potential customer. And I'm really curious, I think that your perspective can help the the listeners that we have who listen to this to learn about how to be a better storyteller. Mm, mm-hmm. Because it's a perspective as a personal storyteller we don't we don't think about very often. Yeah. How can I think of this like a business to capitalize on the gains, right. you know, a bunch right. of business words. Completely. And so uh, I know that was a lot, but maybe you could just uh, give us a little bit and we can go from there. Yeah, I mean when I th- think about storytelling, it's all the same stuff to me. It's just about shifting motivations. So um, uh, whether I'm telling stories for entertainment or, or thinking about storytelling as like a therapeutic tool or storytelling for some kind of designs on an audience, like, you know, it's a political cause or it's a business or it's a nonprofit trying to raise funds or, or get volunteers. It's all the same ingredients. You're just calibrating them to different goals Hmm. um so uh you're always dealing with some kind of consciousness some sort of characters at the center of these circumstances and things are going to happen to that consciousness they're you know it it could be a person it could be an inanimate object that has a consciousness right in cartoons and whatnot right um it could be anything there's gonna be something that's aware of itself um that is going to experience something 
and then there's going to be some sort of actions that that consciousness takes uh, uh, in the face of various pressures, various things on themselves. Could be small, could be internal, could be you know personal between each other, could be uh, itself versus nature, itself versus society, could be any number of layers. Um, and then, in my view, there's going to be just the final ingredient is always going to be some sort of transformation of that difficulty into something of value, into something that means something. So by virtue of this person or being going through the experience, they extract something out of it, or we as the audience right. extract something out There's of it. There's a takeaway. Exactly. Those three things are going to be in any kind of story we talk about, whether it's for a business or a movie or you know uh, uh, anything, poetry, music. Yeah. Um, you're going to have those pieces. So then it just becomes about, do you have designs on the audience or don't you? Like, hmm. do you actually want them to do something or think something specific afterwards? Right. Or is it more just about making that connection? Another way, so this, I like this word a lot. Um, it has a negative connotation when people hear it. I think most of the time people think negative right away with this word. But I think it's, it's, it's a word that's going to help people really understand what I think you're talking about. Manipulation. Yeah. Do you want to? Do you have a way that you want to manipulate this audience? Yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit. Why is manipulation considered bad? We don't. We don't want to think of ourselves as like puppets that can be played. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um. But you know, I think you you it gets more complicated once you realize that our brains are doing that to ourselves hmm. every day anyway. Without like we, we never get the raw data. Like when we're experiencing our day to day lives. We get the raw input from our five senses, and then what they've re discovered in like research about 15 or so years ago is that there's a physical part of the brain that sits between those sensory receptors and the decision-making parts of the brain. That is the neural story net, is what these scientists call it, which just interprets that raw input into terms that make sense for our decision-making brain. And the terms it happens to center around are the ones we just isolated. There's going to be a character, there's going to be a goal, there's going to be obstacles to stand in front of that goal, and there's going to be a reason they're after that goal or something like that. What they found in this research is that essentially it's like what Salman Rushdie says when we're the storytelling animal. It's It may be the thing that makes us human is that we tell stories. We think in story terms. Hmm. We tell ourselves stories all the time. We use story terms as our filtering mechanism for is this information relevant to me right now or not? Um, and uh, because of that, we're manipulating ourselves every day. Yeah. Our brains are the puppet masters. We just don't know it. Hmm. Um, so there's a difference between that and, yes, consciously trying to, like, trick somebody or think something that's not true or anything yeah. like that is different. It's interesting. As yeah. you're talking, I'm thinking about the difference between the words manipulate yeah. and influence. Sure. You know, it's, influence is the positive version of manipulate. Yeah, it can be I, thought that way. Right. Yeah. yeah. But, but what's interesting is I feel like the word influence is not as strong. It's it, definitely not. It does not evoke the same, I'm being forced to think this. Mm -hmm. And I just truly think that there is a type of positive manipulation mm -hmm. that is that forced isn't quite the right word, but I have dug this trench for you as an audience yeah. to lead to a very specific ending point. Right. But there's also a route that I want that water to flow. And yeah. that's why I have dug that trench as manipulation for yeah. that water yeah. th that, that is the audience, the sea of people that is the audience. Yeah, that's not bad, and I it's, think no, it's I not. think that we as people, uh, storytellers and story listeners, yeah, have to just accept that we're being manipulated all the time, right? And, and we've got to just we've got to a be okay with it, but then also like train our brains to like spot the positive manipulation yeah. and, and spot the negative manipulation. How do you how do you feel those things as a storyteller working in media like this, where? You know, nobody wants to feel manipulated by a company. Yeah, but definitely. I not. recently, I uh, I grew up in church. I'm a pastor's mm -hmm. kid, and have never been anti-cannabis, but never had an interest in it. Sure. June 2020, um, I have neuropathy, and I was in Colorado, and just was like, you know what? I want to see if this helps with the nerve pain at all. It did. Instantly became a convert. Wow. Uh, and it also, cannabis just started helping me in my my mental health and personal life, things like that. And it started making everything that never made sense to me just start kind of clicking, right? That's it was awesome. just, yeah, it was a really cool experience. And so I was like, well, I wonder if it would help make church make sense to me. Yeah. If if going to church a little bit stoned would <laughs> would just make it go, oh, here's the missing piece that yeah. is just that's always felt wrong. Right. Nope. No. <laughs> all it did. <laughs> all it did was it made me realize that from the time you step foot in the door, church. And I, this is not necessarily bad. This mm -hmm. is what led me to the thought of yeah. not all manipulation is bad. I think most of church manipulation is bad. Understood. 
Um, but from the moment you step in the door, you're being manipulated. Mm -hmm. Everything that they do yes. from the moment you put your foot th across the threshold is something to move you in a certain direction. Yes. And that's all that being stoned at church could focus me on. Yeah. And it just made me go, oh, yeah. I don't like being manipulated in this way. Right. Right. And it's just not that everybody needs to go use cannabis to be able to spot the manipulation. Right. In fact, probably don't because most people won't react that yeah. way. They'll yeah, just yeah, get yeah, couch blocked, right. right? But I do think it's important to be able to spot those manipulations in your life. Yes. And it does make you a better storyteller because it teaches you and me how to be the positive manipulator. It does. And I think you learn by doing with this as, as with a lot of crafts like this, you just learn over time things that you maybe can't articulate with words, but I'll try to articulate one thing yeah. that I've taken away right Sorry, now. I know I asked you a question and then no, spoke no, no, at no. length. This is fantastic. Yeah, you can't choose as a storyteller not to manipulate. There's no way to do that. It is it is, it is, is manipulation by definition. Um, you know, in the film world, the person who kind of coined that was Jean-Luc Godard, who kind of said, you know, film like lies 24 frames a second or whatever mm, it is. Right. It's like it, you can't choose not to. It is by definition by what it is by taking 24 pictures with frames excluding some things including others it is telling you a a a baked version of reality it is cooked already it mm -hmm. is not the truth it yeah. can't be so storytelling by its nature is always going to be that way you learn through telling Hold stories on a second. Yes. did you just say it's cooked by nature by nature i really yes. like that yeah it just took a while for it to sink in with yeah. me but that's a really good you're never getting raw ingredients interesting no if you listen to our podcast to learn how to become a better storyteller, please pay attention to this next part of the conversation. There's a lot of great takeaways from Michael about how to become better at storytelling. But but so then the question becomes, as a storyteller, is there a way to do that responsibly? Right. Is there is Because there's clearly a way to overcook it, where it's like, this is straight propaganda now. <laughs> like, you know, where it's like, this is just... You know, and what a fine will. line yeah. that can be. Right, exactly, right. It's, it, as a storyteller, it can be really hard to know where you are on either side of that. But you learn through doing it long enough, um, kind of where that line is. You kind of, you can feel it. Yeah. And and one example I'll give that maybe is a way I can put this into words is um, Andrew Stanton, who is one of the directors at Pixar. He did uh, WALL-E. Mm -hmm. um, he has this phrase that he came up with called the unifying rule of two plus two, which basically means in telling a story, you never give the audience four. You give them two plus two because the audience actually wants to put right. that together. They yeah. don't. Oh, yeah. Yes. Right. I say I from from the beginning of yeah. Story Slam, you know, you, I'm sure you get this question all the time, yeah. too. What makes a good story? Right. How do you tell a good story? And my, one of my answers has always been, it's what you don't tell the audience. Yes. It's, you know, people think, oh, you've got to be really descriptive and you've got to make sure. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Make sure that you're hitting the points you need to hit, but also make sure that you're not giving them stuff that doesn't matter in the least. Right. Part of the experience of hearing a story is using that imagination as the listener, using your creativity yeah. that you inherently have and hearing just enough to make your brain go, and then I bet this happened. Yep. It makes it more personal to yes. you. It makes it a better story. Yes, and it, yeah, stories, another way of phrasing it I've heard is that they are well-organized absence of information yeah. is what stories are. Yes, um, wow, it, I've never yeah. had somebody agree with me <laughs> Oh yeah. This. Oh, it's totally true. <laughs> um, you can find millions of examples of this. Um, uh, I'll really I'll take you a step further. I go really hard on this actually, and to the point where I sometimes like to think of the fact that who we traditionally think of as the storytellers. So in this case, we've been thinking of ourselves, you right. and I as storytellers. We're not actually the storytellers. The audience is really the storyteller. We're just putting all the pieces in front of them that they're going to construct the story with in their own minds. Mm -hmm. And the skill comes in. In what order do we deliver those ingredients? And what are the ingredients? Which ones do we hold back? Which ones do we put forward? It's all that kind of stuff, but they're telling the story in their own brains. Yeah. Um, and that's how you get things like, you know, when the Jaws machine doesn't work, you can imply so much with the audience right. without the shark on screen. And it's scarier than if you saw the mechanical shark. So like that the audience brought that right. with them. Um, and you know, there's millions of examples of that. That's so interesting because the way that I'm thinking about it as, you know, the curator of Story Slam of presenting a, a theme and saying, now come tell a true story based on that theme. Very often I've heard, yeah, it reminded me of something that, you know, your theme, for instance, the one coming up is boldly. That's mm -hmm. our theme. 
And I'm sure there will be people that say, yeah, you know, the theme reminds me of a story that I, that's from my life, but like, it's not like a story story. It's just mm -hmm. something that happened. And as you're sitting there talking, I'm thinking, what are the ways you guys did a, 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 a thing for Tracty building? Yes. Oh yeah. And I'm familiar with Tracty because I grew up in some prairie and they're their business was, I think, for a long time in some prairie in the business part. They have been. If, if, yeah, we did work with them years ago. So right, you're, you're years, years, years yeah. and years ago. Yeah. 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 And, and this is not, I, listen, I didn't do yeah. any research, no offense, but this is <laughs> because, good. you know, I just like what you're doing. And back in the day, I, I just remember going to your website and, and watching everything I could. Oh. And, you know, thank you. Yeah. Initially, I just thought, you know, I see, okay, they're doing something for Tracty. And I just think, how boring. Mm -hmm. You know, so. So put that in the head of somebody who hears boldly and goes, mm -hmm. well, I've got a story, but it's not really a story. Like I hear Tracty, I'm like, what story could they possibly have to sure. tell? And then you sit down and you watch this piece and it's like, oh, like this is fantastic. Sure. You know, for people who don't know what Tracty building is, they make track buildings. You know, yeah. these uh, aluminum siding buildings there. You'll see them all over Madison, still yeah. in use from like 65 years ago. Yeah. And the Isthmus did like a whole piece on them, like nine years ago, I think, or something like that. But yeah, yeah around the time we made that. Right, yeah. yeah, and and you just don't think, you hear that and you go, what possibly could I have to connect with this? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot. There's actually quite a bit to connect with this with that. And so I'm curious, how do you, as, as somebody yeah. who's trying to make these stories uh, connectable and yep. relatable to an audience, you know, you've got to be, a, I'm, I'm sure you were approached by Tracti. Uh, yes, yes, and, back and so then, yes. When, let's take it out of specifics. When, yes. when somebody, when a company might uh, approach you yeah. to say, hey, help tell our story, and it's something mundane. Yes. Like an aluminum is, siding building. Right, most of the time it is. What is that yeah. process like to try and, two questions. Yes. What's it like to get yourself excited about the project? Mm -hmm. Because I don't know if I could do it about aluminum siding I buildings. I understand, yeah. And then how do you, what's the, what's the process to find the actual good story there? And I think I'm yeah. asking this in relation to the storytellers who listen to this episode going, how do I find right. the actual story in my idea based on Boldly? Well, thinking about that already, I'll take the questions in reverse then. Yeah, so yeah. so the, the, how, how we go about finding one, if, if it's something mundane that we're being tasked with. You know, we've done a lot of stuff for construction companies. We've done a lot of stuff for insurance companies. We've done realty. Like a lot of stuff that is in the category of mundane. It's not the sexiest step in the world. Yeah, sorry. I'm not meaning to <laughs> no, 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 on, no. on the people. You've worked but with. I'm with you. This yeah. is the, it, it's a real thing. Um, uh, for us, the, the first thing that I look for whenever we're telling a story like that or any story is I'm looking for obstacles. I, if somebody can tell me something was hard, that is the that is almost like I don't know what you'd call it. It's like I, it's like I've detected. I, I've got the, my met my I'm on a beach and I'm walking around with my metal detector and I'm looking for stuff and it it beeps a little bit when, right. when I see an obstacle. It's like okay, great. So there's an obstacle here somewhere. An obstacle implies that somebody wanted something and couldn't get it. So whatever, give me those pieces now. Those pieces are around the obstacle. So what did they want? What, what And they couldn't get it because of this obstacle. And who are they? And why did they want that thing? Hmm. And you can kind of, anytime you have an obstacle, I think of myself as chasing obstacles, I can I can, I can can find all the other ingredients around it. It's kind of like you're a detective. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the truly boring client jobs are always going to be clients that don't want to talk about anything being hard ever. Sure. So they want like a flowery story of like, this is how it started and everything's yeah. good. And like, we're just going strong and yeah. come, come be part of that. And the tragedy of that from, for their standpoint is if they don't realize that by making it sound easy, they're sapping it of all value. Hmm. If it's easy, Talk there's no reason that. to want it. Yeah. yeah so like nobody relates to easily achieved perfection. Nobody, nobody is like, <laughs> you, you know say. what? Yeah. <laughs> Life is easy. There's never any hardship. And I have everything I want, and it's perfect, and I need nothing more. That That's unrealistic. Nobody believes it. Nobody relates to it. And in a situation where you're telling stories to influence or telling stories because mm -hmm. you have designs on an audience, you need them to relate to something being hard, and whatever it is you're doing somehow makes that easier for them. So you have to find what's the pro what's the problem, what's the hardship, what's the difficulty, what's the pain point, to use the business phrase. Um, and once you find that, the very existence of a pain point all the other story ingredients are connected. All you got to do is ask the logical follow-ups now. If there's a pain point, that means somebody wanted something and couldn't get it. Who's the somebody and what's the thing they wanted? And you've got like three of the major story plots right there. Right. Now, obviously you spend hours and hours beyond that, but you, but though that's what you're going after is you're trying to find those pieces and suddenly you can find 
meaning in just about anything. Hmm. Um, that is where you start to learn, though, that you can easily ascribe meaning to things where there is no meaning, too. Like, there's a whole bunch of stuff here you just learn by doing it. I call this the magnum opus problem. Okay. Uh, I'd very, love to hear about that. Very often, uh, I have I have seen... Listen, I have... Sometimes I try to do the math mm -hmm. to, to try and figure out how many stories I've heard from, sure. from our stage. It's a lot. I bet. It, it's... I, I look on Facebook, and I know we've done 64 past events. Mm. And... Of those, I mean, sometimes we'd have 18 storytellers. Sometimes we'd only have 10. So, I mean, it's, conservatively, I'd say a 1,000 people at least, wow. or a 1,000 stories just from our stage. Wow. And there there are a lot of times where you, somebody gets on stage to tell this really true, really personal mm -hmm. story that means a lot to them. Yeah. It was a, it's a pillar in their life of to, that they can point to and say, I am who I am today in part because of pillar number three. Right. And it is this story. Yep. But it's a shit story. Yeah. It's bad. Yeah. And they get up there and they tell it. Yeah. And it's very short usually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is okay. This is not me saying, please don't tell these stories because I actually love these stories. It's very short and they realize it didn't land. Mm -hmm. It didn't have the same impact for this sea of people that it has for them personally. Yeah. And so then they try to fill it in. Instead of instead of not giving everything to the audience, yeah. they give everything and more. Mm -hmm. to, and it's it's this magnum opus complex of like, no, but if I give you more, you'll understand the gravity of how important this story is. Right. And what they just need to know is, hey, it's okay. Yeah. It's okay that your experience was super impactful for you mm -hmm. and that this version of the story for it didn't land. Yeah. All that is is just an opportunity to figure out because if it is truly impactful for you, it will be impactful for somebody else. Yes. That's one thing I've learned through yes. storytelling. It just comes down to how can you get the audience on that same journey with you. Yeah. And it's very interesting. It's, it's very interesting how you have to do that with businesses too. Oh, completely. And and the way that it always comes out with businesses that have that same problem is we've seen it a million times. It's that you get cliches you suddenly get a whole bunch of businesses saying we're in it to change the world and it's mm -hmm. just so it's so grandiose and so vague that it means nothing i think when it comes to, when it's a person telling a story mm -hmm. i don't think of it as an ego problem mm -hmm. i think of it just as they think it's really an important thing that changed them and if yeah. it could change somebody else they want it to as well but I think for whatever reason, when I hear a business struggling with that to yeah. tell their story, I think, get over yourself. Well, it comes off that way. Yeah. That's the result. But the irony is it starts from, I think, a similar place. It starts where, where the, just being in a lot of those meetings, they start from a place where they feel obligated to live up to some big, grandiose thing. And if they're not, somehow that's worse. Maybe for both parties, the yeah. individual on a stage and the business, maybe it is. it comes... The thought that something that you've done or yeah. experienced can change the world or have right. an impact. I mean, that is kind of ego, right? It is. Absolutely. Right? And we all have it. Yeah. 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 Very interesting. Let's talk about Tom Monfiles, if, if you're cool with it. Sure. Well, and before, because you were talking about the the, yeah. the story slam and all that stuff, and you've seen, heard like a thousand yes. storytellers and all that kind of stuff. Tell me a little bit about why it's been away for three three years. Is that right? Yeah. So what, our last yeah. one was in. We had one scheduled in March 2020, but mm -hmm. as you're aware, one or two things. Uh, yeah, there's been <laughs> there's been a few things happening in the world. Hey, speaking of our live events, our next one is May 20th at the Wilmar Center, and we're raising money for the Wilmar Center with this Story Slam. So please come, help, be generous. We're gonna help Wilmar Center put on Fete de Marquette this year. That's right, we're raising money for them to add a stage. Well, not really add it, but to fill it out. It's called the Cabaret Stage. They've invited us to do a Story Slam there on Thursday night, maybe on Sunday, we're not quite sure yet, but then we're hosting every other thing that's happening on the stage throughout the weekend. Come to Wilmar Neighborhood Center, May 20th, ready to donate and ready to make Fete de Marquette and the Madison Story Slam there be the best that it can be. You know, it's funny, I, I just did a deep dive on the Story Slam Facebook page of just like going through post after post mm -hmm. and and I saw two things that, that were interesting to me. I saw a post that was two weeks before our March 2020 event that said, hey, we're monitoring. We're not sure if we think we should do this. And let us know what you think. And overwhelmingly, the people in this community were like, we're not coming. Yeah. Uh, so you should definitely cancel it. And like, it was just, it was a good thing to do. But then I also came across the video that I posted. It was a Facebook Live video of me ending Story Slam officially, like a year and a half oh, into the pandemic yeah. of just like, I don't have it in me anymore. 
it's so interesting to watch the video because what I'm seeing is somebody who's doing something he has no desire to do. I did yeah. not want to end Story Slam. I I was I was upset. I mean, yeah. I was I was clearly very depressed. So it ended because uh, December 2019, I get diagnosed with diabetes. Mm. And I was a really unhealthy guy in the first six months of the pandemic from December 2019. So I guess not the six months of the pandemic, but December 2019 to June 2020, I lost 100 pounds. I just wow. radically changed my life. That's like right after we filmed with you, I want to say. Well, yeah, right? we, moved, we we filmed in March 2019. Yes, you're right. You're yeah. right. I had it one year later. You're yeah. right. And um, it just radically changed my life. And it couldn't have come at a better time. Listen, if you need to lose a bunch of weight yeah. and and change the way you're living, because I also quit drinking. Um, I, I did a lot of stuff yeah. to, to change. If you need to do that, I totally suggest making a worldwide pandemic happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, because it closed down the world. Like, I couldn't go out to eat anymore. I couldn't go to bars to drink. Like, I, there was no temptation. So mm. it was just, it was very easy to close a lot of doors, right? Mm. It was just so easy to be like, all right, I'll close the door on this bad thing and I'll clo close the door on this bad thing. And closing doors on bad stuff, it transitioned to useless stuff. Mm. I don't need this. I, I enjoy it. I don't need this thing anymore. So I'm going to close it. And closing doors over and over again eventually just led me to closing every door and just self-isolating in the worst possible way. Oh, no. And it was just one of those, um, it seemed so positive to me at the time. Yeah. It seemed, it was just such a lie. Yeah. And then I had like, a, in December 21, I went to a storytelling event here in town at Stateline Distillery and tried to get up and tell this story. And I was in the midst of like the worst depression of my life. And tried to get up this and tell this story about how I was despondent about the end of Story Slam. And what came out was me basically saying that Story Slam was bullshit and the community never me uh, meant anything to anybody and like all this stuff. Wow. I, I don't even remember exactly what I said. Yeah. But I just remember getting done telling this quote unquote story yeah. <laughs> and, and walking off stage and just being like, what did I just do? And just like not feeling good ever since then. Yeah. And, and then... In uh, we we moved to Colorado. We 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 had this crazy thing happen where, um, in the midst of my depression, I went to work at the Wisconsin DOT as a phone agent during a worldwide pandemic, talking yeah. to the general public every oh day. Yeah, uh, just miserable. And on my way to work in on March eleventh, uh, twenty two, I just realized that ending my misery didn't mean ending my life. Mm -hmm. It simply meant quitting this goddamn fucking job. That mm -hmm. was all it meant. Yeah. So then I quit my job, and a week later we moved to Steamboat Springs because the day I quit my job, my wife was offered a, a job as a nanny for a, a, a ranching family out there. Oh wow, okay. And then she got pregnant two months into us being there, and yeah. so we knew we'd, we'd be back eventually. But also two months into us being there, a, a friend of mine and a longtime storyteller uh, from Madison Story Slam, Dave Nelson, um, he took his life. He, oh my gosh. Yeah, he he lost his battle with uh, anxiety and depression, which he has battled his entire life, and it just it is it has and continues to affect me pretty greatly. I bet. And it made me start thinking about Story Slam in a different way. Um, I I always talked about how the importance of what we do is the building community that we're a community and and we love each other and we're here for each other. Because it was true for me. That's mm -hmm. what it was for me. It, it was more church than church ever was. Sure. That's a good way of thinking about it. And Dave's death made me realize that it wasn't just that for me. Yeah. It made me realize that I missed one key factor about what Story Slam was. It was all of that for a lot of other people too. Yeah. And because I felt done with it, I just kind of like pulled the rug out from under everybody who who relied on it again as a pillar in their life that makes them so not that anybody from Dave's family or or circle of friends have ever been like shame on you for for ending this thing mm -hmm. but I do feel tremendous guilt about it mm. I I just do I and and so I got to spend the our entire time in Colorado working on my mental health mm -hmm. Um, my wife gave me a great gift uh, to just say you know what let's let's get you right let's get you not depressed and. And part of that process was realizing that I closed all these doors that were incredibly meaningful to me. Um, one of the most important being Story Slam. When it became reality that, hey, we're moving home, I knew pretty quickly that Story Slam would be not necessarily coming back, but I just knew it would be a part of my life. Yeah. Then we, we've always uh, worked with the Wilmar Center, their community center on the east side. I just, I love that place. I love community. Yeah. I, I, it's interesting. I was talking to the the director over there, Gary, and I said, I love people, you know, and I went, 
maybe I don't love people, but I love connecting. Mm-hmm. I love that, that, that what it takes to connect with a person and, and meet them where they're at. And I said to him, I, you've got my dream job. Like just work for a nonprofit that just meets people where they're at and builds community. Like that's a dream to yeah. me. And I walked away from that conversation going, that's literally what I was doing with StorySlam. Oh, like I sure. just literally, you, I, the, the job here is to come up with events and ways to get people to connect with each other and tell stories. Yeah. And I just realized, what am I doing? Why am I not making this happen? So I called Gary right away and I was like, hey, uh, let me do a story slam on May 20th. That, And I said, it, we'll, it, we won't take any money. Like, we'll, It'll just to be raise money for you guys and do whatever you want with it. And the, the response was just so overwhelming that I was like, well, maybe we should just be back back. Yeah, yeah <laughs> right. Well, I'm glad you are back back. Because, I mean, that that's a... Um... You've got me thinking about a whole bunch of things as a result of that. What you, everything you just told. Yeah. Um, you know, when you when you when you think about the kind of two elements that that I hear that that were filled with that story slam was the community thing you keep coming back to, which totally makes sense. And and obviously not having a, not having story slam as a thing was one element, but also the pandemic itself kind of you know being a torpedo into the side of that yeah. shit as well of community and, and content and all that stuff the other comp- pieces when you come together in that community what you're doing is the ritual of storytelling right and the ritual of storytelling is something that you know being a pastor's kid as you said like and, and i and i w- went to a, a religious elementary school um uh but i, I never was really religious right, but i right. have that religious background yeah i find myself there is there is a a nourishment that doesn't happen when you uh, have nothing in your life that is ritual in some way or yeah. something that is communal communication in a nonverbal way. But because stories are verbal, but really what's being said is not the words, it's the things between the words. Like there's, 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 a, there's a ritual hole. There is something yeah. mystical, yeah. sacred, whatever right. you want to call it, about a group of people coming together for singular purpose. Yeah. Whether it's a religious experience or not, I, you know, however you want to relate to it. I don't relate stories to a religious experience yeah. or, or story slam as a religious experience. It's close to me. It is. And I've always called storytelling my religion to some yeah. extent. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it's there, there, there's this powerful thing that happens when, uh, you know, on, on a good night at story slam, we'd have 200 plus people in there. Mm-hmm. And so when 200 people get together in a room with the goal of, we want to A, hear stories, but also, I always say the meat of what Story Slam was, what happened, because we would do three stories and then we'd take a 10 minute break. Mm. And that 10 minute break is really the true part of what Story Slam was, because people got to shake hands yeah. and go up to a storyteller and say, Oh, I related to that so much because here's what happened in my life. The, the importance of what Story Slam was for me, and I imagine if it's me, it's other people too, or at least an aspect of it for them is that it leveled the playing field. It made mm. every single person in that room have some sense of thinking, we're all the same. Right. I'm not alone. Yeah. Because I've heard somebody else go through, tell, get up and tell this story about something that sort of touches on the feeling that I have from this experience. Yeah. And so if they felt it, I know that I'm not the only person, and probably somebody else in this room has felt it too. Yeah. And so you get all these people talking about why they love the story, maybe not just with the storyteller, but their their table partners or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's where that community building happens. Yeah. And that's sacred to me. That is super cool. When we were living in Steamboat Springs, it was I learned a lot about community. Mm. Steamboat, we actually lived in a, a tiny little town called Clark, 17 miles north of Steamboat. And Steamboat is so remote. It is four hours from Denver. It is up in the Rocky Mountains. It is a an extreme place to live. Mm. So much so that like whoever you meet is your neighbor, is oh, your wow. friend, is yeah. your community member. There, I mean, obviously there are party lines and there are religious differences and there are things that make us different. But out there, they don't matter. Yeah. Because if you're broken down on the side of the road during a 13-inch snowstorm, which was not like a freak thing that happened, it was a regular occurrence, you needed somebody to stop. I love being back in Madison, but one thing that I've noticed is that Madison really is so segregated. And yeah. I don't just mean like racially, it's just everybody has something that makes them who they are. Yeah. And it's very prominent. I wish that Madison could be like Steamboat in that everybody's my neighbor. It yes. doesn't matter who you are, your color, your race, your your religion, your creed, whatever. Yes. We're neighbors just because we are. I think that's what I really like about storytelling. Is I it am. it really that connection that I'm talking about, that line of connection, it's 
we're neighbors just because we are. Yeah. Roger Ebert called movies empathy machines. And I, yeah. I, I, I tend to swap out movies with storytelling because I think that's really what it is. Yeah. That, you know, movies are just one expression of it. But I would say books are empathy machines. Any sort of storytelling is an empathy machine. Yeah, I like that. I like yeah. that phrase. Speaking of storytelling and, and movies and empathy machines, tell me about Tom Monfiles. Yeah, gosh. Um, well, Tom Monfiles was a paper mill worker in Green Bay, Wisconsin, uh, who in 1992, November of 92, was found dead at the bottom of a pulp vat at James River Paper Mill uh, with a makeshift jump rope tied around his neck, the other end of which was attached to a 50-pound weight. Um, and So clearly an accident. Yes, clearly an accident. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, no intentionality in, anywhere involved there. Um, and so he's, he's found dead. Is, uh, uh, and immediately it's ruled a homicide. Uh, uh, a two-year-long investigation by the police g- gets underway that eventually culminates in the trial and conviction of six of his co-workers who were dubbed the Monfile Six by the local press uh, in conspiracy to commit first-degree intentional homicide. So it didn't mean that all of them tied the rope around his neck, but it meant they were all part of a conspiratorial chain of events that led to him being killed and put in the vat. So these six guys are, are sentenced to life in prison, uh, and to this day, they've never wavered on claiming they're innocent. Um, they've been given many opportunities uh, to rat on each other, uh, to get a better deal if one of them came forward and admitted to it. Um, and none of them have. Um, and so it's a fascinating, harrowing story. Um, everyone in the Green Bay area or Brown County, uh, northern Wisconsin, kind of knows about it. Yeah. Um, uh, has some opinion on it, remembers it if they were around at that time. Um, it was actually unfold. The trial was unfolding at the same time as the OJ trial. And so there's there's speculation that if OJ wasn't taking up the national headlines, this would have been the salacious national kind of case because it was just that kind of crazy. Um, uh, uh, but so yeah, it's, it's a, it's a harrowing story that was brought to us, um, at the 2013 Green Bay Film Festival. Uh, there were advocates on behalf of the, the Monfile Six, uh, claiming their innocence that wanted to make a movie out of it. Um, they had already made, uh, a kind of an advocacy book arguing for their innocence. Um, I'm not terribly interested in making advocacy pieces for, uh, my art projects for my for my film projects I do that all the time for right. my paid gigs um, uh, and if you want to hire me I'll happily do that <laughs> um, but uh, if I'm doing an independent passion project it it to me it's much more about that reaching out and touching the audience goal more so than I'm actually trying to get the audience to take a particular view or take a particular cause or something right. like that um, I, I want to tell stories that touch all of us um, and help us understand the world better rather than just tell us one way to think about something um so uh over the subsequent nine years we produced this uh feature-length true crime documentary called beyond human nature um and uh, it's actually been finished since uh the pandemic started yeah i mean i i the first time <laughs> yeah. i watched it was years ago yes, exactly <laughs> um uh, and there's been very subtle adjustments but nothing you would notice yeah. um uh but uh, uh, but it's basically been in kind of development limbo since then. Um, we were developing it with a production company uh, into a four-part limited series for a year and a half, um, uh, but no network ended up officially buying that. Um, and at a certain point, we just had to pull the plug and say, look, like this needs to just end at some point. It needs to have an audience. Um, 2023 uh, happens to be the 30th anniversary of when Tom oh, was discovered. Yeah. Um, uh, and since then... Uh, Keith Kutzka, who's kind of thought of as the ringleader of the Monfile Six, is the only remaining uh, individual in, behind bars, uh, and he comes up for parole this year again. Um, the other five, one has passed since, Dale Baston. Mike Piaskowski was the first one released on a writ of habeas corpus in 2001, and that was very controversial at the time. Um, the state argues that he got out basically on a technicality, and I kind of can't disagree with that, um, but he's out and he thinks he was innocent, so it doesn't really matter. Um, uh, Mike Hearn and Mike Johnson and Ray Moore, who were the <laughs> All the three. mics. I know, there's so <laughs> many mics. Um, uh, those three got out it sent in like 2018, so like in various stages uh, as their paroles came up. So um, yeah, it's, it's kind of a crazy story. So uh, yeah, we've got this film now, and now it's uh, available on digital VOD. You can pre-order it now and it'll be available to actually watch through buying or renting on digital VOD on May 
second. So, And I will have uh, links in the show notes here uh, directing people where they can go because you are going to be a good guy and email me those <laughs> Yes, I am. Yes, I will. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, well, tell me about, um, you know, you say advocacy. Like I remember thinking or getting the vibe like there's not really – there's not really anything in here that's pointing us to say Story First Media thinks these people are innocent. There's not necessarily anything in here that's saying Story First Media thinks these people are guilty. You're just presenting the story. How difficult, or, or do you disagree? Your no, face kind of. I I I get way more granular about this than probably most people sure. care about. But I but I um it goes back to what we were talking about earlier in the conversation that we're we're all cooking the information ourselves right. anyway. So I wouldn't say that I'm just presenting the story because there's no way to do that. Yeah, that's um, true. This is always going to be a story of the Tom Monfils investigation. Um, I don't say this is definitive. Um, but what I would say is. I want to, in my strategy of putting the pieces, the ingredients forward for the audience to put together, I don't want to rob the audience of their agency. I want the That's audience... That's a great way of looking at it. Yeah, I want the audience to be able to look at, to observe the world, observe the story, observe the characters and, and the obstacles and the choices made, and think about it, and put together two plus two into four themselves. I mm. don't want to give them four. Um, number one, because I don't think it's as compelling when you give the audience four. But number two, especially in a documentary, I, I do think it robs the audience of their agency. So that's what I do. Yeah, uh, and not only their agency, but part of the fun yeah. of 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 being a, a a member, a participant in yes. that story. Yeah, like you're talking about. That's cool. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you know, when we're talking about true crime documentaries and and Wisconsin, I think most people can't help but think of making a murder. Yes. And we were fortunate enough to have Dean Strang, Stephen Avery's uh, lawyer, on the show here oh, very twice. Cool. And yeah. so got to talk to him about all of that yeah. and, and more. But thinking about that movie, I wonder when we're talking about not stealing the audience's agency, it's kind of impossible to watch that that series, I guess not a movie, and not be convinced that this guy is innocent. Yep. You don't really have a whole lot of agency, it feels like, in that movie. You're on the ride that they want you to be on. Right. How do you... Yeah. Like, because I'm a creative. I've, I've got a story I want to tell as I'm telling Tom Monfile's story. Right. I'm, I'm you right now. How do, you, how do you best step back a little bit but also honor your process? Yeah. To me, it all comes back to motivation again in storytelling. It's, it's all the same stuff, but what changes is the motivation. I, I think a lot of documentary filmmakers get into documentary because they want to impact some sort of change in the world with the documentary. Um, it's actually kind of almost a cliche in the documentary world that like the the high dream, the highest achievement of a documentary is that you affect some sort of change with your story. I hear that. That's great. I love that. Uh, I loved Navalny. Which I love is, that yeah. for you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Navalny was amazing, which just won the Academy Award. I thought it was fantastic. Obviously, it's all for him. Of course it is. He's you know the the, the opposition leader in Russia. Yeah. You're not going to have the pro-Putin side. I get it. Um, uh, but it's not the only thing you can do with nonfiction. Um, uh, to me, an equally valuable nonfiction uh, uh, film is one that tries to better understand the world that tries to make sense of something that seems senseless, that tries to pull a conflict apart and say, how did it arrive here? Like, how did we get to this place? Um, uh, you know, and what does it say about all of us that we just kind of arrived there? Like we, like we all made our various decisions under pressure along the way. And now we're in a place where no one seems very happy. What, it, you know, why is this? And that's more kind of what I'm drawn to. So, uh, uh, yeah, when we think about making a murder, which I, interestingly enough, started it debuted after we started filming this movie. Right, yeah. We've been filming this for so long. Yeah. Um. Uh. Uh. So we were we were very aware of that as we were filming this documentary. Um. You know, I respect the craftsmanship and all that stuff, but I felt a little bit duped, honestly, by that series because whether he's guilty or innocent. I can't make the adequate assessment based on that documentary because I feel like I'm only being fed one side. I mean, it's almost fiction. Yeah, it, it, right. It, it's so, and I just mean, it's so good. Yeah, that story that they told yeah. is so good. Right. That it's hard not to compare it to good fiction. It is, and and I and I feel as an audience member, I'm when I'm told a story that systematically is built to make me come away with one take, it's one singular thing. Yes. Yep. Whether that take is true or not, I feel like I'm in actually a lesser position to make that decision 
on the basis of that one-sided piece. It's so funny because you're you're saying that, and I and I think like you haven't said this a yeah. hundred times during our conversation. I'm thinking, well, you've been robbed of your agency, right? Right. <laughs> Seriously, like you know, one of my favorite um, people, one of my favorite uh, uh, literary individuals in history was Christopher Hitchens, who died in 2011. Um, uh, he once said in his uh, criticism of uh, Fahrenheit 9/11, which I won't go into all this stuff, but he had he wrote a, a critique of Fahrenheit 9/11 that has forever been my kind of goalpost for documentary. He said that if you make a documentary and uh, have your point of view, but you systematically remove anything that complicates your perspective and don't give any chance to the other side that would disagree. You've betrayed your craft. Hmm. You've actually taken what the craft is about and perverted it. I mean, it kind of illegitimizes what, what you're doing. Right. Your side. Right. How you, is it you, nonfiction if you're only showing one side of something? Yeah. Like it's not nonfiction. Though. It also kind of shows your fear. It, yeah. it kind of shows your yellow belly, right? It does. Of like, well, here's my side, but I don't want to give it the scrutiny of the other. Exactly. It's, which is why, in some ways, and I've said this before, um, when I'm making Beyond Human Nature or Last Day at Lambo, my previous documentary, which was all about Brett Favre leaving the Green Bay Packers, in some ways, if, if in an interview somebody said something that I didn't agree with, it actually had probably a higher chance of making it into the film than something I did agree with because it it sent me somewhere. It was a surprise. Right. And so the surprise is what makes the storytelling valuable. So, like... I wanted to have all those. I wanted to have these, oh, that's an interesting take. I'd never thought of it that way before. Um, uh, if it's all just one kind of hammer beat, um, uh, it, it, I feel hobbled as an audience member. I really do. And so I, I, I get why people think that in the documentary world and in you know uh, the nonfiction space, they think that uh, there's a responsibility to the truth as they see it. Hmm. I understand that, but be careful with that. Because you end up creating a whole bunch of things that make people less equipped to actually make those cases because they haven't actually even reckoned with what the counterargument is. Did you struggle with that at all, making uh, Beyond Human Nature? Was, I, was, were there things that you were like, yeah, like, I should include this, but I, it's just, it's going to derail what I'm trying to do? A little bit. Well, I, I think what I've wrestled with on that front is more that I have my own opinion about what happened but I don't know that it's any more valuable an opinion than anyone else who's spent time looking into this case. So there were there were many times throughout the nine years where I thought to myself, am I doing the right thing? Like, am I, should I actually just make the case for what I think is right here? I'm, I'm pretty darn sure that what I think is probably the right way to go here. You know, I think that it happened this way. But if I did that, I think I would, it's, it's the ultimate irony, but I think I, it really would work against what I believe hmm. it would work. It would, it would make it, it would make the audience less able to convincingly argue for what I think is right. Right. <laughs> that's interesting. I, I'm curious as a documentarian, not that oh, that's yeah. all you do. You do more than that. Um, but just in a general sense, as a documentarian, who's trying to tell a story without robbing the audience of their agency and without, you know, putting your own personal, that journalistic integrity of like, I don't put my own opinion into here. Yeah. I wonder if the way to do it is through question, mm -hmm. right? I think of Louis Theroux, who, for my money, best documentary maker out there. Oh, Just, yeah, I think you told me that before. I, yeah. I love Louis Theroux because all he does is ask questions as if he's like a, a second grader questions about things he obviously knows because yes. he just has a conversation like this and then he'll ask, Well, like, why though? Yeah. And it's just so simple. And it's his way of getting the audience to go on this story that he wants to tell, yeah. but without ever one single time really saying, well, here's what, what I think, and here's yeah. why you're wrong about that. Yeah. Questioning. Well, and you probably know this, the, the etymology of the word story is Greek for learning through inquiry. I didn't know that. Well, there we are. <laughs> but that's actually true. Learning through inquiry. Learning through inquiry huh. is what the Greek root word for story actually means. Yeah. And so, you know, I've I've taken that to heart and think about it that way as well, where if you're not curious, and a lot of people say they're curious, but they're not actually curious. If, if you're actually curious, and uh, uh, that that's like the best trait a storyteller can have, I think, hmm. is that you're, you're really receptive to that yeah, world I'm, around you. Maybe, yeah, totally. Especially as I think of it like, the stories, you know, we, we early on in our conversation, we were talking about the people, the Magnus, mm -hmm. magnum opus complex here, the problem. And I think maybe part of the problem that storytellers like that are having is that they're not asking, why is this such an important story to me? Why yeah, did this be. have such an impact? 
I yeah, think it's not self-interrogating ex- enough. Right. Yeah. It's just it's just the facts. It's just a statement, yeah. more or less. But if you threw some questions in there and explored those questions through story, yeah. that could make an interesting story. Yeah, that and could, be open to surprising yourself. Yeah. You know, that's that's one of the things, you know, when making nonfiction, it, it, a, a clue to me about whether something's compelling or not when you're making it or when you're writing it is, does it surprise you? Because you, you, that's really one of your only cues uh, that, oh, this might actually be compelling to another audience member. Because if it's not surprising you, it's probably not going to surprise anyone else. But like, if, if it surprises you, hold on to that. Because that's, those are the, you will, you will likely be able to build, you know, kind of the skeleton of your story on those surprises. But yeah. Uh, well, Michael, I, I've really enjoyed the conversation. I do. I, one, one final thing uh, that I have felt bad for uh, four years now, because we filmed in March, 2019, it's 2023, March 23 now. Um, I remember, uh, Two things when I when we were filming in the bar and I was I was the bar uh, bartender. Mm. Uh, do you remember that? It was I the do. last day of shooting. Yep. yep. And I had to what the one shot that <laughs> would not goddamn work is rolling the dice. Oh yeah. Getting, and like we spent like fucking forty minutes yeah. trying to get them thing. And I remember I. I'm. I was just being goofy and being like joking around. A lot of people talking. I've got the the cinematographer. Is his name Michael as well? Yeah, Michael Nye. Yep. Um. He was trying to talk to me, and like I can't everybody because yeah. it's not a speaking uh, shot, yeah. and, and I couldn't hear anything. And just as a joke, I went, "Shut up! I'm fucking shooting dice!" <laughs> and everybody in the room thought I was serious, and like it sucked all of the energy out. And I was like, "Oh, really? Oh, fuck!" <laughs> I felt so bad. But the thing I felt worse about was, you know, we're talking about all the mics and yes. all of the uh cuz it was two just mics too. Like right. Well, the the mics from the Mom Files yeah. case, but then there's you and and, and, Mike and yeah, Mike Knight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um but you know, I got to meet some of these guys, mm-hmm. which was uh an Oh interesting, yeah, because they came to a set visit. Yep. It was interesting because I don't know if these guys are murderers or not. Right. Super nice guys. Right. Really pleasant to talk to. Yep. Really just good old Wisconsin guys. Yeah. And but the entire time in the back of your mind, you go, these guys might have murdered somebody, right? Just for nothing, really. Yeah. Because when you watch the movie, you're gonna go, wow, if they murdered this guy, it was for nothing, right? And there's a there's a certain uncomfortableness that I like to have fun with, yeah. And so like there are jokes being made on set that day between me and some of the other people, for right? sure. And at one point, you had to come over and go, hey guys, they're right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I vaguely remember something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, you weren't like mad yeah. or anything. You yeah. just said, "Hey, like we we all got to be really aware of how we're speaking." Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was just like, "Oh yeah, like there's yeah. real people at the center of this. this. Is not a movie, right? It's obviously a movie, right. but it's not a movie, right? There's real people in the world that any telling of this story affects to one degree or another, um, and those people." Uh, you know, th- there's a responsibility that I have there uh, as the teller to make sure that they are clear about what my intentions are as yeah. the storyteller. Um, I've, I tried to make the point from the very early stages that I'm not, this is not going to be a film that advocates for one view over another. If I can't talk to everybody and can't get a picture from all the disputed sides here, I'm not going to make it. So like I need to be able to talk to everybody. So everyone was clear about that. Um, and then um, just recognizing that, yeah, that telling a story like this will will affect them in ways we can't know. So, right. um, so yes, it, it, keeping that in balance to one degree or another. Um, you know, I think a lot about Cal Monfiles, who's Tom's brother, kind of becomes a de facto protagonist by the end of the story because he's the only character uh, in the story that acts against his own self-interest uh, by the end. He is acting against the incentives laid out for him in the sense that he believes these six guys didn't kill his brother. Uh, and he's mm. made a loud noise about that. Right. Um, and he's taken a lot of heat from his family for that. He's People are confused about why he's doing this. Um, uh, you know, why, why would you be banding together with the guys who killed your brother is kind of the sentiment. Right. Um, uh, but he does not believe they did. So uh, I, whenever I think about the real world impact on these people, I, I tend to center on him uh, uh, and, and, and think about, you know, he has, he has his convictions and he, and he believes something a certain way. And if I'm going to have ultimate loyalty to anybody, it would be to Tom uh, 
what Tom would have wanted in some way or another um, with this, never having known, known the man, never knowing only as much as we know about him, um, and Cal as his brother. Um, but everybody did. Everybody who who was who gave us their time, you know, the detective who a lot of people in this story hate, uh, think was, you know, basically the reason they got put in prison against uh, uh, being innocent. Um, the the DA who who prosecuted the case, they all gave their trust to us, and and I have an obligation in that. Totally. So yeah, well that that does uh, that puts a new spin on the responsibility of telling a story when it's not just your story. Yeah. I mean, you obviously have your story that you're telling through this. Yeah. I think any, I think that's fair to say, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. But you can't not. <laughs> right. But but you're also at the helm of this ship. That's a story for a lot of people. That's yeah. That's pressure. Yeah. And if you don't reckon with that, um, I, I think you're you're being a little reckless. Yeah. So. Well, I'm I'm glad there's somebody like you who is at the helm, who is thinking that way, because as I've learned, being irresponsible with uh, storytelling mm. can can lead to terrible things. Yeah, you know? and maybe the last note I would put on that is the cue that I've learned over my 13 plus years of telling stories for a profession. The thing I've learned is the danger zone you get into is when you tell stories with a bit too much certainty. Is when when you're too sure, <laughs> yeah, of of your perception. That's usually when you're gonna get a little bit reckless. And so, you know, it's interesting. I have real quick, and we'll yeah. wrap up here. Yeah. I have a story about a time. Uh, regular listeners to the show will remember the Belvedere Oasis story. Mm-hmm. It's about a time that uh, I won't give it all, but it's I know st- the Belvedere Oasis. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's a story about the family bathroom there and my necessity for using the family bathroom, which which is a bathroom that you can just lock the door. It's got a stall in it. Sure. Anymore. I don't like to poop in public restrooms. Sure. <laughs> so family bathroom is very important. Understood. I one time uh, more or less tried to break down the stall door of a woman, an old woman. She was in there, but she didn't lock the outer door, right? Uh-huh. So what's really interesting about this story for me, it's something I've just come to realize, and it makes me appreciate what storytelling is, something mm-hmm. that what you're just now talking about. My perspective of that story is that I accidentally barged in on a woman in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. But if you heard the story, you would understand that her perspective, her true version of that story is that she was almost assaulted in a public restroom. Right, right. And it's just so important to to remember that your outlook on your own personal story may not be the truth that somebody hears. Right. It may not be. And and there's not much control you can have over it. You can, like we talked about, you can dig that trench for the water, for for the sea of people as an audience. But you can't control what they grab onto right. and then what their own shit says, this is the truth of that story. There's there's no such thing as an objective story. And having said that, that's not a license to then just go all in on your own subjectivity either. You yeah. somehow have to split that Man, pair. That's so wild. Yeah. All right, Michael, real quick, tell people where they can find you and uh, remind them again about uh, when the Wisconsin Film Fest is and how they can watch Beyond Ab- Human Nature. Absolutely. So I'm on most social media platforms, but I'm most active uh, on TikTok at Story First Media. That's all spelled out, uh, where I give uh, storytelling kind of tips for brands and organizations and also storytelling for life and art as well. Um, uh, but other, other social media platforms at my name, Michael Nielsen, and you can watch the movie, yes, at the Wisconsin Film Festival. Um, first, we're going to be at the Green Bay Film Festival for the world premiere, uh, which is Friday, April 13th. Hey, Adam, chiming in here again real quick to let you know that Friday, April 13th is not a date that exists. It is happening on Friday, April 14th. And then the next day, April 14th, we're in Madison. Hey, me again. Last time you're going to hear from this quiet, sultry, my two-month-old is sleeping and it's, you know, late at night version of Adam. But uh, again, Saturday, April 14th doesn't exist. It's Saturday, April 15th in Madison. Uh, Tickets are available at both those film festivals' websites. We will also be having two screenings at the Milwaukee Film Festival later in the month. Those will be available through the Milwaukee Film Festival website. Uh, but if you can't get to any of those, because I get that's only four evenings, uh, it it is now, currently, as you're listening to this, available on digital, video on demand, anywhere you buy or rent movies. So Apple, Amazon, DirecTV, any of these places, uh, uh, Beyond Human Nature is the title. I would love for you to pre-order it, and uh, please let me know what you think about it, because to me... The most interesting conversation about this app now is people's reactions. I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated to hear what people actually think about this and what they take away from it because people surprise me still. So Yeah, 
Oh, and also, I would love to know what you think about it, listeners, because I'm in it. That's right. Yes. What do you think about Adam's performance? Exactly. Like, can you can you uh, can you pick out my northern Wisconsin accent that Michael had me do for? I believe it was Kutzka. It was. Uh, it was Brian Kellner. Oh, it yes. was yes, Kellner. Yes, That's Brian right. Kellner. Yes, you you read his affidavit uh, yeah. and his recitation. Yes, <laughs> oh, man, it was so wild. All right, well, Michael Nielsen, thank you so much, and listeners, you can be sure check the show notes for links to the websites and the socials and all that stuff please go watch this movie it, it was a lot of work that went into it I was only on set for I think three days and three days of work on a documentary was more work than I thought like just seeing everything that really goes into something like this it's worth it, it and, and it's a good story and we want you to see it Michael thank you so much for coming on thank you for having me hey what do you think another good episode this time with me and Michael Nielsen talking stories and film and what makes a good story and all that good stuff. You know, talking about film, documentary. His new documentary, Beyond Human Nature, is out for pre-order now. You can check the show notes for links on where to go. If you want to catch it on the big screen, be sure to head over to the Wisconsin Film Festival here in Madison on April 15th. That's Saturday, April 15th. And if you're up in the Fox Valley near Green Bay, the film festival there happening on Friday, April 14th is also playing it. So you can check it out there as well if you're in that neck of the woods. Speaking of dates, our next live story slam, our first live story slam since February of 2019. No, maybe March 5th. 2019, we did an event at Stateline Distillery, but our next one is Saturday, May 20th, 2023, at our old stomping grounds, the Wilmar Neighborhood Center. The theme is boldly, so come tell a great story about a time you've been bold, or just come looking to hear great stories. This go around, we're raising money for the Wilmar Center. It's $10 suggested donation. We hope to see you there. And as always, I love you.